Well, good morning, everybody. We're going to pray, and then we're going to read our scripture reading. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's pray first. Father, we do just thank you so much for this time. Thank you that we can come here and be together and sing about you together, that we can hear what your scriptures have to say to us. I just ask that you would speak through me that what is true would land as true and be believed. What is false would be discarded. And I just ask that you would work like a therapist on our hearts this morning. And that, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would teach us, that you would change us, that you would help us um, to have a right view of ourselves, a right view of your church, of Christian leaders, um, and a fear of you that is real. And so we just ask that you would do that this morning. We just think of those who aren't with us again. We ask for healing for Kathy. We ask for healing for others that are sick um, and not here this morning. Think of I think it's Lexi who is sick, that you would be with her. For the many that can't come for various reasons, some um, of body, that you would encourage them and that you would help help them. In Jesus' name, Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 is our scripture reading this morning. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. That's God's Word. Amen. So again, coming to Corinthians and trying to get our minds in the ancient letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Corinth. And what have we been finding? We've been finding that the Corinthians have been plagued by living by the values of Corinth more than the values of the kingdom. And we too can be prone to live by the values of America than the values of the gospel. And so, they have been bringing in sinful ways of looking at the world. They've been bringing in false ideas of what maturity would look like, of what wisdom is. They've been taking the values of this present age, the present evil age, more than the values and truth of the age to come that had been launched when Jesus rose from the dead. And so what were some of these problems that Paul identified in Corinth so far? 
There's going to be a lot. But so far, some of them, um, one commentator, I think, gives a good summary. This is what he says. The content of our epistle makes it clear that Christians in Corinth still carried over into their Christian existence many of the cultural traits that characterize their pre-Christian culture. Of these, we may mention especially the problems and destructive tendencies set in motion by a drive toward competitiveness, self-achievement, and self-promotion, an attitude of self-sufficiency, self-congratulation and autonomy, and entitlement to indulge freedoms, and the tendency to overvalue gifts of knowledge, wisdom, and freedom over and above more basic gifts in everyday life such as love and respect for others. So those are some of the problems in Corinth. And they sound familiar. I was trying to look for, you know, what are some values that we Americans have? What are just some general values of Americans? And I found this from the University of Portland as kind of a way in which international students might travel and come for their own version of culture shock. Okay, sometimes we think about our culture shock when we go to other cultures. Well, what are others' culture shock when they come to ours? And these are just a few of the values that are held. One, individualism. The most important thing to understand about U.S. Americans is probably their devotion to individualism. They have been trained from early in their lives to consider themselves separate individuals who are responsible for their own situations in life and their own destinies. They've been trained to see themselves as members of a close-knit... Excuse me. They have not been trained to see themselves as members of a close-knit, tightly interdependent family religious group, tribe, nation, or other group. Other things like work and achievement. She's a hard worker, one U.S. American might say in praise of another, or he gets the job done. These expressions convey their attitudes towards successful conclusions. These expressions convey an admiration for achievers, people whose lives are centered around efforts to accomplish some physical measurable thing goes on to talk about equality, how Americans believe in the idea as the Declaration of Independence says, all people are created equal. Although they sometimes violate this ideal in their daily lives, particularly in certain matters, and he kind of goes on, but Americans have a deep faith that in some fundamental way, all people are of equal value, that no one is born superior to anybody else. So that's some of the values that we have And we can see how in an individualistic society with values that really push that, we too can fall into some of these same areas of self-promotion, self-achievement, and wisdom. And so, in Corinth, Paul was not impressive enough for them. He was not impressive enough for them. He, his wisdom in his speech was not wise enough according to their own standards. There might have been some who said, hey, I follow Paul, but then others say, hey, I follow Apollos, I follow others. His message of the cross was viewed as weak, as viewed as offensive. And so there were many there in that church that were not a fan of his. They were trumpeting one of the others. 
And so part of what Paul starts to do here is he'll start to, in a sense, defend what some of the ministry of being an apostle is. Because he knows that they are not a fan. We see that even more in the book of 2 Corinthians. You'll see that even more how later on in the Corinthian life that became even more of an issue. But what's so interesting about Paul is Paul's identity is not found in what they think about him. Paul lives by a different way of freedom. And the, the title I kind of wanted to give this message was How to View Christian Leaders and Yourself. Okay, How to View Christian Leaders and Yourself. If you want a subtitle, The Freedom of Living in the Fear of God. So Paul is a free man and free all the way through. He is grounded in his identity in the person of Jesus Christ. And he wants to share that with them. And last week, we kind of saw how various tyrannies, various powers in life, how Paul was trying to encourage them and say, you're free from all these. All of this is going to be for you anyway. We all belong together. We belong to Christ. We belong to God. You don't have to be enslaved to time or the past or the future. Or you don't have to be enslaved to the fear of death. You are free. Christ is yours. If you really believe that Christ is King and Lord and you are God's, you can walk in freedom. And so here, he's starting to to tell them You can't be held captive to the tyranny of what other people think about you. You cannot be held captive to the tyranny of what you think about you. And again, in our culture, we are. We see this even more in social networking with the like button and being in tyranny to what other people think. One social critic, Chuck Klosterman, wrote this about being likable in our age. And this, I think, was actually either at the beginning or before this whole onset of Facebook and Instagram and all those different things. But this is what he said. Being likable is the only thing that seems to matter to anyone. You see this everywhere. Parents don't act like parents anymore because they mainly want their kids to like them. They want their kids to see them as their two best friends. This is why modern kids act like animals. At some point, people confused being liked with being good. Those two qualities are not the same. It's important to be a good person. It's not important to be a well-liked person. It's a social critic, and he's not a Christian. But that is wise, and that is true. We can be enslaved to being liked. And some of what Paul is saying in this little chunk of scripture right here, these five verses, is he's trying to both free them and give them a different perspective of the way in which they should view Christian leaders and themselves and not to be enslaved to those things. And it's easy to be. Every single one of us is probably more prone to one of the... We're, we're, we're all prone to both. But I think some personalities can tend to be a little more prone to view what other people think about us as kind of the chief important thing and standard in life. Or we can be the type that kind of get caught up in our heads, the introspective type, and and just caught up in our own views of ourself. 
and what we think of ourselves. And the standard, again, not being Christ and what He thinks and what's true about, about Him is what's true about us. And so, that's some of the context here, some of what Paul is doing. And what he's also going to do is he's going to switch metaphors a little bit here. He's going to move to the metaphor of the household. Remember, we've been talking about building inspectors and buildings and temples and gardens. And now Paul is going to kind of switch to the household. And the household in that time, which was different than our households, some of these values of American culture, like things like equality, and of that nature, they lived in a much more hierarchical society. Okay, the patriarchy hadn't been busted up, so to speak, then. Okay? So, they live in a hierarchical culture, which is why we have a lot of talk of things like slavery. And so, what he, what he says to them is, this is how, this is verse 1, this is how one should regard us. Again, he's talking about us teachers, like me, like Paul, like Apollos. Your Christian leaders. This is how you should regard us. This is how you should think of us. This is the appropriate view of human leaders. Appropriate view of Christian leaders. And here's the categories. The categories are servants and stewards. Some categories that really seem foreign to us. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Both a slave, a servant of Christ, and also a steward, like a manager, like a manager of an estate. In that case, it would be of the household. There's the master of the household, the household leaves. Sometimes the master would then appoint a manager. Could be a slave, could be a freedman. So there's the sense in which a slave of Christ, we do what Christ tells us to do, but also a sense in which maybe a slave that has been raised to a position in the household and raised as the steward and estate manager of the household to pay off the debts, make sure things are going good, do all the things that they should do in managing the estate. And, and the same kind of picture Jesus uses a lot in parables. Stewards, masters leaving, things like that. So he's saying, hey, Christian leaders are managers of the household, the household of God. So where does the responsibility lie? The responsibility for the steward of the ancient household lies to the master, not to the household itself. But when the master goes, you better do things that are proper to the affairs of the way the master would have done it. So sometimes in my line of work, and I can't give legal advice, but we work with trusts and things like that a lot. That's my great slogan that I'm always used to saying. Um, But you might have a trust. And as a trustee, you need to be trustworthy with the trust and do what the trust has said should be done. What's your job? Your job is to be a trustworthy trustee of the trust. Okay? That's what it is. That's what the job of a Christian leader is. To be trustworthy. To be faithful. We'll get to that a little bit more in a second. But the key thing to really lock in on is that when the master is gone and the managers are doing their thing, the managers are not the Lord. The Lord is left. The master is left. And they are to steward 
the household well. And what are they to do? That's, that's told us right here. They're stewards of what? The mysteries of God. Hmm. Mysteries. Now, this isn't trying to say like secret mysteries, like kind of mysteries that haven't been revealed. Remember, in the New Testament, when Paul talks about a mystery, he's saying, hey, the mystery is now public. Christ has come, the Messiah has come, but it's still kind of a mystery to the world because this is not making sense. The king just got crucified. But this is now public to the world. That there is a crucified Messiah, that God's plan, in 1 Corinthians 2, he talks about how God's plan was predestined and planned beforehand. Okay, That the rulers of this age were not going to understand it. In fact, they were going to kill the king. So it made no sense. But they're stewards of this mystery that God has now made public. That sinners can be saved, that death has been defeated, and that the Messiah, the King of Jew and Gentile, would be crucified, that he would defeat death by dying, and he would die like a criminal slave to save sinners. And that's our message. And so the message of any steward of the good news of Jesus, the message of every Christian leader, the main thing should be that. The main thing is not just to get up and say how to live a good life. It's to be a steward of the mysteries of God. That God has come in the person of Jesus to save us from our sins. That He is bringing a new heavens and a new earth. That now we can live according to a way of thinking about an age to come and not this age. And so that's the message of wisdom that many do not understand. That, that it can be seen as foolishness. And so, he's saying, how do we view, how should you in Corinth regard Paul and Apollos and other leaders simply as servants, as estate managers of the mysteries of God, of the wisdom of God? And then in verse 2, what's the goal? What's the goal of those stewards? What's the goal of a Christian leader? It's simply faithfulness. It's simply faithfulness. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Again, like we said with trustees and trusts, that they be trustworthy. That's the goal. So the goal is not that the Christian leader be successful. The goal is not celebrity pastor. The goal is not, you know, YouTube influencer. The goal is not a bunch of followers, a bunch of likes, a bunch of numbers. All those things may come and that can actually be good. But that's not the goal. The goal is to be a faithful steward of the mysteries of God. To view themselves, ourselves as Christian leaders, to view us as the goal here is faithfulness. Are we faithful with the gospel, with the good news? And so the metrics of the world do not always line up. And sometimes we bring the metrics of the world into the view of the church. But the goal is to be faithful before God. To be faithful before the Lord, before the King. That's the goal. And he goes on, But with me, this is verse 3, 
It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. So the courtroom of self, the courtroom of other people's opinions is smaller than the courtroom of God. Obviously. Easy thing to say. Very hard thing to practically put into practice when you wake up tomorrow morning and go out into your household or the world or where else. Or wherever else. The courtroom of self, the courtroom of other people's opinions is smaller than God's. It's a lesser magistrate. I just love the way he says it. Just so simple. With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. It's kind of probably a little bit of a slap in the face, a bit. A little bit of a side swipe. This is small. This is no big deal. He's got a different perspective. So me and a friend of mine, um, Brian Ogden, who some of you know, um, were tearing down our chimney. And we rented this Big boom thing. I don't know what the term is. The big giant things that sit there with the wheels and they put you up in the air and you're sitting in a little basket. Okay? So we were getting up high on the basket. I don't like heights. My attitude was bad from the beginning of the morning. Okay? Bad attitude. So we go up high for the first time and I'm like, I get down and, and seriously, I, I, I cannot do this. Like, I don't really care. Let's just forget it. I'm going to rent it. Big deal. I'm not doing it. Ended up getting up. If Brian wouldn't have been there, who knows what would have happened. But, but, but um, we, so we get up there and we're kind of working along and doing our stuff. And your perspective kind of changes, right? Your perspective can change. It doesn't actually look that high when you're looking at it. But when you start to move up, it starts to feel really high, especially if you're afraid of heights. So you start to go down over time. We're kind of still going down, but it still feels kind of high. And so at one point, I think we asked Kate to bring me my phone or something. And Brian says to me, and don't you feel like an idiot or something like this? Like she literally just walks up and she hands us the phone like this. And we're still chipping away at the brick. So, so the point is, is our view of things can be wrong sometimes when we're actually experiencing it. And so what, what Paul is saying is saying, hey, hey, your view, your perspective here is wrong. It's, it's not right. You're putting, you got the wrong courtroom in mind. You're living by the wrong thing. And how we too can do that. We need God to change the inner workings of our heart. To see, because what we think of as a big deal is not a big deal. It can be a very small thing. Especially when it comes to your view of yourself and your view of other people's opinions. Paul lives by a different value system. And interestingly, this, this word right here, this any human court can also just mean any human day. I believe, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but the Greek word just says day. Kind of like that idea of it's your day in court. Okay? You don't live by your day in human court. We should live by the day, the day, when Jesus comes. That's the day that we should live by. Any human day is less than God's judgment day. So human day, human court, court of yourself, the court of other people, a little less than sign, God's day. The day Jesus comes. 
the final day. And this word for judged is like examined, some translations say. I think the NASB. Investigated. Like you're kind of putting all of the evidences for the verdict. It's a very small thing that I should be judged, that I should be examined, that I should be investigated by you or by any human day, by any human day in court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Lecrae. Christian rapper, if you live for people's acceptance, you will die from their rejection. If you live for people's acceptance, you will die from their rejection. And so though we belong to one another, and that's Paul's view, he's already said that, that's one way to get spiritually mature is to believe all of us belong to each other. We're all in God's field, God's building, God's temple, but we don't bow to one another. That's not our ultimate fear. It is the fear of the Lord. And then Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Interesting. He's not so caught up in himself to judge and examine himself all the time. And this would have been contrary to kind of the stoic idea of the day. When you read the Stoics, they talk a lot about self-examination. And there's a tension here because Paul in other passages talks about self-examination too. But here he's saying there's a way in which you can just examine yourself and think you're just fine. You may not be. Because you can think you got a clear conscience and everything is good to go. But who's the standard here? Christ is the standard. So I don't even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself. Now, that always upsets me. I don't like it when the Bible talks that way because I keep thinking, I can think of all kinds of things against myself. I understand how he talks that way. It's like you want to say, Paul, have you looked at your life? Do you remember the thing you did with Barnabas? Do you remember the thing you did before you were a Christian? Like you ever read David in the Psalms and he'll just act like he's got the clear conscience and he's all good and you're going, David, I could list so many things right now that you have done. But there's a way in which when you're tied to God, when you've trusted Him, when you have confessed your sin, when you've seen yourself as a sinner and Him as the Savior, that there's a way in which you don't have to judge yourself anymore. You don't have to sit captive to self because that's not the highest court. Christ is the highest court. I don't even judge myself. A clear conscience... Here's another little math problem. Clear conscience, equal sign, cross through it, acquittal, innocence. A clear conscience is not equal to being innocent. That's what he's saying. And he goes on to talk about motives of the heart. Because you can even get into things that you can't even see. We talked about this before. Humans can be self-deceptive. We can be very overconfident. And so, the Stoics that go around talking about self-examination aren't going far enough. Just because you think of yourself as just fine, you have to go even farther. You need a different perspective. And why? Why does he not live by the court, the tyranny of human opinion or of self-opinion? Because of that last sentence in verse 4. Look at it. It is the Lord who judges me. 
It is the Lord who judges me. If you go over to Proverbs 9.10, what is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10, let's just read it. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is in sight. You want to be a wise person, fear the Lord. That's just the beginning. If you don't start there, everything else along the way will get messed up. The first courtroom that we have to think of in being wise, the examination of what wisdom is, starts with the living God, the King of Kings, the living Christ. All other forms of wisdom are not wise if it does not start there. So, true Christian wisdom, true Christian freedom actually starts with the fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord frees you from the tyranny of self-judgment and social judgment. Your opinion of yourself is insignificant. Other people's opinion of you is insignificant compared to the judgment of God. And that can be both psychologically freeing and it is spiritually freeing. Because you can tie yourself all up in knots over your own view of yourself and in viewing what other people think about you. It can free you. Verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Do not pronounce judgment. Sounds like Jesus. That's what Jesus says. Don't judge. Now, there is a way in which judgment is good, right? We We judge all kinds of different things. And actually, Paul in this letter will talk about judgment, basically kicking somebody out of church because of a particular issue. And you don't get to throw the don't judge anybody verse. So there is a way in which you are to judge. But then in this kind of a way, when he's talking about all these guys that are getting all excited about this leader and the other leader and, <laughs> and, and all of that, that they're just living in this social judgment and these kind of little tribes of, of, of cutting off members of Christ and making a big deal out of things that should not be a big deal and getting into this competitive match. And so he's saying to them, do not pronounce judgment. And here's why. I thought this was, thought this was good. Here's what one theologian said. Perverse judgment is a servant of one master and one master alone. So a certain kind of judgment, a perverse judgment. Perverse judgment is a servant of one master and one master alone, my self-interest. In this way, perverse judgment is in league with a disorderly and utterly destructive desire that is never far from the surface in every human being, the desire to exalt myself above my fellows. It's an attempt to exalt myself by being not only more powerful, attractive, or confident than others, but also more righteous, more holy, more acceptable to God. Why is it that we take such inordinate pleasure in these things? 
In the end, it's because making these kinds of false judgments serves a very sinister purpose. It helps us maintain the comfortable but deadly illusion that we aren't really sinners. Once sin can be seen as something in others, then I can let myself off the hook. I may go wrong here and there, I may waver, I may slip, but at heart I'm safe and sanctified because I'm not like these others. And it's against these others that my judgment is directed as a weapon, an urbane and intelligent weapon with all the appearance of holiness, but which is in fact a very nasty and destructive instrument indeed. That's the way that evil judgment can work. That's the way that a comparative judgment, kind of what he's talking about here, and an other people's opinion kind of judgment can work. It can serve your own self-interest. And that's the kind of judgment that God does not want us to have. One of the reasons why we say the Apostles' Creed is a simple reminder to say, hey, Christians all over the world for centuries have been saying that or very similar to it for centuries. They may not have all the distinctives that we do. They may be in a different culture, a different time, in a different place. They may even say some things that we disagreement, that we disagree with, but there's a sense in which we're saying, hey, we are unified. We are all a part of God's building. Christ is our King. We are His temple. Because sometimes there can be an attitude of we pretty much got it all right and every single other person is wrong. And he's pushing against that. He's not saying don't be critical, but he's saying, hey, there's an attitude that can develop. Like there's an attitude that can develop. There's kind of a a tribalistic Thomas. Let's just give it a name. Okay, Tribalistic Thomas. I've been this way before. Kind of like, I'm more Calvinist than the other Calvinists. I'm more charismatic than the other charismatic. I'm more, I got more access to God. Or I'm more fundamentalist than everybody else. And the problem with that kind of view is you eat each other. You eat each other. That's the danger of an extreme narrowness. There's not a sense of the broadness of the grace and mercy of God, which this whole section we'll talk about in a minute is, is coded with. And so we have to be careful not to be a tribalistic Thomas. Not to be just pronouncing judgment all over every other Christian leader before the time comes when the motives in the heart is actually revealed. Think about Paul and Philippi, right? When there were other people preaching and proclaiming Christ. He's like, hey, as long as Christ is proclaimed, good to go. Even though they're doing it for all kinds of bad reasons. Because man, he's He's free. He's free. He's not overly concerned. Oh boy, that church is doing this thing and this guy's doing the other thing. There's a sense in which he's not that way. He's still going to address wrong. He's still going to say things. But there's a sense in which there's this unity. There's this vision of, of the grace and the goodness and the kindness of, of God. Why? Because he needed it. He's the chief, right? He said he's the chief of sinners. We need it. When we're viewing and just pronouncing judgment, handing it out like candy, we got a problem. And that's what he is saying. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time comes, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Because there's the motivation. The motivation. There are people that will preach excellent doctrine. Just chipping away every great doctrine that there is. Got it all good. You probably listened to some of their sermons. And they can be motivated by wrong things and later be revealed to be narcissistic, to be abusive, go down the list. 
You can preach right doctrine and do it for the wrong reasons and one day the judge is coming. You can have some things kind of messed up, but actually have a heart that's actually true and that's still sticking in line with the gospel. God will commend them. And we can tend to, so we have to be careful with how we view others and know that one day the judge is coming. And so we don't need to live in the, in the courtroom of our own head or in the courtroom of other people. We need to live in the courtroom of Christ. And that can bring freedom. I thought it was interesting that D.A. Carson, he was kind of talking about this last sentence here. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Sometimes when we think about judgment day, we just get kind of that stern, sober view. It's interesting that Paul in this part is saying they're going to be condemned. Or excuse me, they're going to be commended. So again, there's this highlight, there's this sense of, of grace. Carson said, it's not that he's saying, hey, and they're going to get their rebuke from God when judgment day comes. He's saying, hey, they're going to get their commendation from God. And we know from earlier that some of the work is going to burn up, Right? Some of the work's going to burn up, but they're still going to be saved. Wow. This guy's really got a lot of grace. He's speaking the truth, but there's still this overwhelming sense of the goodness of God's grace. And so, do you, do I, have that attitude? Am I free from the opinion of myself, from the opinion of other people? Am I free to view other Christian leaders in that way? Am I free to, to walk life in that way? A lot of times, no. And when I don't, it's because I'm not believing the gospel, the good news, that the judge is the Savior. Again, we can read this and we can just kind of take an extremely stern and kind of like sober view about Judgment Day. There is a sense in which we should have that. But there's also this sense in which, hey, that's when the Savior's coming. That's when we're going to get the combination from God. That's when, that's, that's when all this other stuff ends. Because even think about the way that Paul talks about it at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. And remember who he's talking to. In chapter 1, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Again, which seems wrong. But that's what he just told the Corinthians. You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, as you're waiting for the day, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Man, that's his view. He's saying, hey, got some problems here. You need to deal with these problems. But hey, church, there's a day coming when God is going to put you forward as guiltless because you have trusted Christ. Man, what an amazing way to live. You don't, so, so it's actually living by, it's living by a smaller view and a small view of sin when you don't actually take it serious enough. Because it's serious. It's an offense against God. But we can also live by a small view of grace when we view ourselves or we view other people as higher than that. Because if we have a big view of sin, we need a big view of grace. 
But sometimes, if we're focused on other people and focused on ourselves, we did this, that, or that other thing in the past, and really that's what's hanging us up all of the time, we're actually living by something else rather than by Christ. So humility comes from a big view of sin and a big view of grace. And we can walk in freedom. That's what Paul walked in. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he could live by that truth, knowing that that the verdict in the future had come into the present. The future day verdict is done for those who have trusted Jesus Christ. The announcement, the no condemnation has been given in the present, in the now, even in the mess. And so he can live free and not enslaved to the tyranny of himself or the tyranny of other people. Keller calls that self-forgetfulness. He has this little tiny book, The Art of Self-Forgetfulness, and he talks about this passage. So we can be tribalistic Thomas, right? We can be self-pitying Sam. That can be me a lot of the time. Self-pitying Sam. Because your view of yourself and your various shame and other things, you just kind of walk around in self-pity. You got, I got way too high a view of myself when I do that. It doesn't take sin seriously. It doesn't take the grace of God in Christ seriously. So don't be self-pitying Sam. Don't be tribalistic Thomas. We want to be self-forgetful Frank. Okay, Self-forgetful Frank. That's who we want to be. That's what the good news of the Gospel brings us. We can forget those other courtrooms because of what Christ has done. I wanted to read a little bit of C.S. Lewis. I'm almost done. Mere Christianity. He's talking about humility. Bringing up some of the same types of things that John Webster and that other quote brought up. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Does this seem to you exaggerated? If so, think it over. I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having it more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. That is why I say that pride is essentially competitive in the way other vices are not. And isn't that some of the problem of what we're seeing here in Corinth? And he goes on, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. 
Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. So that sense of self-forgetfulness. That sense of what Paul is saying here. I'm not enslaved to myself. I'm not enslaved to other people. There's a gospel humility. There's even a gospel confidence and a freedom of living life in that way. I'm going to mess up. You're going to mess up. What do you do? We confess. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes I get defensive. But when we walk in this kind of self-forgiveness, this kind of gospel freedom that, hey, there's a day coming. Yep, I'm going to be judged. The purposes and motivations of my heart are going to be revealed. That's scary. But there's a Christ who loves me. There's a Christ who has forgiven me. So I don't have to be... The standard does not just have to be me and other people. The standard is Christ. That is good news. That can make us self-forgetful. That can give us a good view of other people, a good view of Christian leaders, good view of the church, good view of myself, because we our identity is in Christ. So, let's, let's be that. Let's walk in that kind of freedom because Christ has won that. He has won that for us. And we need to be reminded of it. We remind ourselves every day when we get up and eat breakfast that we're human. Right? If you go a lot of days without eating, you realize you're human pretty quick and you need some food. And we need to remind ourselves of what Christ has done. And we get to do that together. To share, to say, hey, this is for all of us, all those who have trusted Jesus Christ. I don't have to pronounce judgment. It's already been pronounced. It's in what Christ has done for us. So let's do that together. Let's believe that. Let's walk in that kind of freedom. Okay? Amen. Let's, let's sing and come on up and get some, get some meal. So as we worship, you can come and get your communion.
How do we remind ourselves that it is well with our souls? This is how we do it. We don't look at ourselves through our own lens and our own standard. We don't look at other people. We grab wine, grape juice. We grab bread and we remember Jesus Christ. This is how it is well with our soul. And we need to be reminded a lot. So do that today. Take joy in this reminder. First Corinthians. Oop. Oh, there it goes. First Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin and hope in the life. 
Save redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory, great things He has done. Great things He has taught us, great things He has done, and great are rejoicing through Jesus the Son, the purer and higher and greater will be. For wonder our transport in Jesus we see. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he has done. There's that refreshment in the back, and you're welcome to fellowship.